You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Just to remind you of the context, this is a, you know, a section in which Paul is talking about a particular theme. It began in chapter 1, verse 18, and it continues through the end of chapter 3. And Paul, in this section, is laying out his argument uh, for the unrighteousness of all people and their need for the righteousness that God reveals in in the gospel. Uh, The word, therefore, chapter 2, verse 1, connects this passage with uh, chapter 1. Paul is continuing his argument uh, that we are all unrighteous, all sinners, and in case uh, some will not be convicted, we're we're not convicted by the end of chapter 1, he uh, wants to continue to drive home his point in this text. Chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because... You, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray again. Lord, please help us now uh, through your Spirit to apply your words carefully to our hearts that we would hear and receive and respond. And I pray that you would use me as your servant, that you would increase and I would decrease, and your word would go forth. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we might imagine that Paul's uh, letter to the Romans is being read to the congregation for the very first time. Uh, The church has gathered together and this letter is opened and someone stands up to read this letter in front of them all from Paul and there's much eagerness and much excitement and much anticipation uh, to hear it. And perhaps as the reader has read chapter 1 and and verses 18 through 32 about Paul's uh, really thorough explanation of evil, we, we might have imagined at the end of that chapter there was a lot of amens. Uh, and especially perhaps from the Jewish 
congregate, the Jewish congregants who were, who, was, who were there. Perhaps they were saying something like, you know, I agree with you, Paul, 100% on this Romans chapter 1 at the end here. I mean, the, the people who behave badly, he said, but then others who actually approve of the bad behaviors. Paul, I am so thankful that you brought this up. I've been saying this for a while. Aunt Sally down at the end of the pew, she really needed to hear that this morning. And, uh, you know, Joe in the back row, my neighbor, he definitely needed to hear what you had to say there at the end of chapter one. You'll be glad to know, Paul, that I, for one, do not for a moment approve of such things, evil things, as you mentioned there. And I recognize them for the evils that they are, and, and I agree with such people that, that they are without excuse uh, before you. But then the reader continues to chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It would be as if Paul, if he were there in person, would have stopped suddenly and said, uh, oh, and by the way, you back there on the third row, uh, from the back, no offense if you're back there, but you back there, third row in the back, old man who thinks that you, that this message is, is about them and not you. It's about you. You, Grandpa in the eighth row. You, Mom. You, teenager. Paul says, I'm talking about your sinfulness, not anybody else's. It is the tendency of all of us uh, to think to ourselves that we might be the exception. To what Paul is saying. Perhaps it was clearest with the Jewish members, again, of the church in Rome who thought to themselves, you know, we're God's people. I mean, we're, we're in the Old Testament. We're members of the Jewish race. We're religious. We're in church every week. I mean, we're, we're good people. If there's anyone who's immune from God's wrath, and surely Paul is not speaking about us. And yet Paul says here in chapter 2, not so fast. You who are religious, you who are good moral people, you also have no excuse before this holy God. You too are under his judgment. And the reason, he says, is that they practice the same things as the unbelieving pagans, the sins that are mentioned, I think, the same things as in chapter 1, verse 29 and following. You remember that list. You can see it perhaps a page over. Chapter 1, verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And, and maybe they, you know, they didn't practice them to the same extent, but Paul's point is that the sinfulness of all those things is still there. And God sees it in, in the hearts. He sees our sins. He condemns them. Kent Hughes describes uh, the psychology of a moralizer. A moralizer. 
If, if chapter 1, verses 18 through 32 was describing uh, what we might call shameless immorality, chapter 2 is describing the self-righteous moralism that also condemns us before God. Use note several characteristics. First, the self-righteous person doesn't understand the nature and extent of their sin. They think that because maybe they haven't committed one of the big sins, that they are beyond judgment. You remember Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, don't you? Remember how convicting that was? Convicting it when uh, he said, you know, you may not have committed adultery, broken one of the Ten Commandments in the outward sense, but that if you have lusted after another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. Or he said, you may not have murdered somebody in the outward sense, but if, you've, if you have um, in angry self-centeredness had those thoughts about someone, that you've murdered them in your heart. He went on to say even the good things that we do uh, may be tainted by bad motives, motives that, that, that seek to exalt ourselves in other people's eyes rather than God, and that God sees all of this. He is not deceived by any external facade that you and I can put up. We might deceive one another, but God is not deceived. He knows everything. He knows about the sins we commit. He knows of all the things that, that we shouldn't do that we do and the things that we should do and we don't. And He knows all of the motives, the impure motives even behind what we do. Why? Our God is a holy God and He knows everything. But a, a self-righteous person just doesn't want to think that their sins are all that bad. They might be excused. In fact, uh, Hughes goes on to note another mark that, they, that self-righteous people often have an intrinsic blindness to their own sins. So much so that they, they don't see the same things for which they condemn other people. A hard one to admit. He says, therefore... Uh, Paul, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. It's, very, it's like the man, again, Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that guy who, uh, he, who couldn't see the log in his own eye, but he was very quick to point out the splinter in others' eyes. We're prone to be that way. We're prone to be harsh critics. We're prone to say, yeah, at the end of chapter one, get them, Paul. But me? Like King David after he committed adultery with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. You remember that, that story when Nathan, the prophet, came and he told David about the story of the, the rich man who stole the poor man's beloved sheep. And then he had it slaughtered and he fed it to his guest. And it just angered, enraged David. He said in 2 Samuel, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he has no pity. And then Nathan said to David, You are the man. 
David couldn't see it. That what he'd done, that he'd done the same thing in a greater scale with Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. This is Paul's response too. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. You are the man. You're unrighteousness before God. But our sins often blind us to that. It's like the man who walked into the counselor's office and he had a half a cantaloupe on his head and he had a strip of bacon wrapped around each ear and when the doctor saw him he thought to himself I've got a real one today until the man said I'm here to see you about my brother (laughs) Paul is saying that that the unrighteousness that I'm speaking of here is about you But the religious person, the self-righteous person, easily forgets his own wrongs and and he feels that everybody else's sins are so much greater than his own. He thinks he's perhaps is the exception. He's like the the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. God, you're so lucky to have me. Perhaps the worst of all, the uh, the mistake the moralist makes is that he mistakes God's kindness and patience as, as condoning his own lifestyle. We get a glimpse of this in verse 4. We'll talk about it a little more in a minute. Or, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is the kind of person who, who says, you know what, my sins, they're not that serious. They can't be that serious because, I mean, you know, nothing bad really ever happens to me. I'm sinning right now. In fact, I'm enjoying sinning right now. It's bringing some joy in my life. And there's, nothing, there's no lightning coming. Where is this judgment that you speak of, preacher? How does Paul answer this man? Well, he's answering him in this, in this text. And he's warning us that just as the, the man who suppresses the truth about God, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul wants us to understand that the self-righteous man on the day of judgment will also have no excuse. And Paul answers it for five reasons, or gives five reasons, I think, in the text. First of all, the judgment of God is according to the truth. This is verse 2. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That phrase, rightly falls, I think is better rendered according to the truth. According to the truth. That's the reason why it rightly falls. Sometimes in court cases, we might wonder when the verdict comes, did was that really justice? I mean, was that really the, the truth that, that, that came out in all of that? But, but what we are told here, and not just here, but in many places in the, in the courtroom of God, that we can be confident that the judgment of God is always according to the truth. For one, we have a righteous God. Amen? He's right in every way. He's not given to bribes and corruption and and that kind of thing. He's the truth. He's righteous. And and so we know his judgments are righteous. We we also know that he is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. He has all of the facts. He doesn't have part of the facts and part of the story. He's got all of them, including the motives of people's hearts. And he's omnipotent, all-powerful, able to render judgment and to make certain that his decisions are carried out. No one is going to stand before God someday and say, this is not fair. No. 
Because God sees and knows everything. His judgment is according to the truth. What would happen if, as God's word was being preached to us, that, that your sins and my sins started to be projected on the screen behind me for everyone to see? Makes me a little uncomfortable, does it you? What if the truth about you, who you are when no one is looking, is revealed? This is the level of conviction that, that Paul is intentionally trying to, to point us to. For, for one thing, it will, be, it will be the case in the judgment before, before God. There, there won't be any hiding. All of it will be according to the truth. And so what Paul is doing is getting us to think about these things really for three whole chapters, which is, is really intense. But, but the reason is, is until we've plummeted something of the depths of our own sinfulness, until we've gotten honest, really honest with ourselves about who we are before God and, and all of the twistedness that is there, we won't understand the good news of the gospel. We can sing about amazing grace, but we will never feel that that grace is amazing until we've Come to grips with this. Do you feel the weight of your sin before God? Or do you still think you might be an exception? That was Paul's second point. The judgment of God allows for no exceptions. He says, verse 3, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You think you're going to be an exception in this? I think there's good reasons to believe here that Paul is uh, speaking a little more closely to the Jewish congregants. It, I think it will become more clear in verse 17. Again, the part of the attitude might have been that the Jews being among God's privileged people whom the covenant was given and the law was given to, that they might be on exceptions. And I think if we're honest with us, we, we, again, we all drift uh, toward, this, toward the exceptions, don't we? My, my grandparents built this church. Or, I've, I've been here every Sunday since I was, well, even since I was in my mother's womb, since before I was born. Or, I've worked my fingers to the bone here. Or, I'm better than a lot of other people here. But Paul says there are no exceptions in the judgment of God. Why? Because as Paul will conclude in Romans 3.10, that none is righteous, no, not one. I think it's one of the uh, deepest hopes of an unsaved person that uh, somehow he is going to escape this. There's going to be some way, maybe because of their good intentions, you know, or they think their goodness is going to outweigh their bad, and God is just going to overlook and so forth. And, and we can always find somebody who's worse than we are that we can point to in this. Surely, if there would be an exception, it would, it would be me. Uh, W.C. Fields lay in, in his hospital room on his deathbed, and a friend came to see him, and he was shocked to find Fields reading the Bible. He was shocked because Fields was not a, 
a believer. He, he was not known for his religious devotion anyway. When his friend asked him, why are you reading the Bible? Here he is on his deathbed. He said, I'm looking for loopholes, he said. Uh, everyone thinks there's going to be a loophole. A, very, a, a way of escape from this omniscient, all-powerful, holy, righteous God. But there's no way to escape the judgment of God except through, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. But most people don't want that. And so they keep trying to find another way to escape. Third, Paul says the judgment of God uncovers presumption. That's verse 4 again. He says, or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Here, I think Paul is speaking of those who might take refuge or try to take refuge in a theological argument. It's very clever Uh, John Stott reminds us of this. Theology can be turned to bad uses as well as good. And that's true. I mean, I've heard this argument before, and it's particularly made often today. Someone says, well, you know, I just don't believe in this God that you're talking about, this God of judgment. God is going to judge people. The God I believe in is a God of love. I think God loves everybody, and He's never going to judge anybody for their sins, and in the end, He's going to save everybody. And so you, you might ask, well, where do you get that theology at? And they, they would say, well, from the Bible. God is love, church, amen? I mean, the Scripture says that. Here's what Exodus 34, 6 says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, I like this, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Where do you get your argument? I get it right here. God is much too kind. He's much too forbearing and patient not to forgive sin. And then you would ask, well, what about the rest of verse 7? Well, I don't know. Let me look at that, what it says. It says of God, who will by no means clear the guilty. Well, how does that work? Verse after verse, such as here in Romans, warns us about the judgment of God, the, the wrath of God because of sin and those who practice sin. But it's so easy to twist things, isn't it? Theology and misapplying Scripture, uh, I think Paul would say here in Romans, is dangerous because he reminds us God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. All of those wonderful things about God are meant to lead you to repent. To turn from sin. That's that's the point. That's the goal. It's intended to give us an opportunity to repent, not an excuse to continue on in sin. This is the warning Peter gives to those who perhaps were thinking, uh, where is this judgment you're talking about? I'm, I'm doing fine in my sins. 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And they will say, where is the promise of His coming? But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. It's a tragic mistake to presume on God's patience. And it's a sure sign of stubbornness and an unrepentant heart. Paul is telling us. Fourth, the fourth truth about judgment. Judgment of God results in terrible retribution. Verse 5, here's what Paul goes on to say. But because of your heart and your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Here Paul's arguing. He's saying that such unrepentance and stubbornness has only one end make do not be fooled by this it has only one outcome you are storing up not treasures as we would normally think about storing up treasures in heaven but storing up rather wrath on the day of god's judgment far from escaping it you might think you're escaping it you're not escaping it you're storing it up for the day of wrath Paul uses a banking metaphor there, doesn't it? You know, we think about storing up or saving. It's wise to take some money from your paycheck every week or every month and putting that away, storing that, saving that. And over time, that money will grow in case there are needs that, that come up. But just so, Paul says, every time that we sin, we are adding an indictment against ourselves. Storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Have you thought about your sins in that light? That every day we sin without repentance, that is apart from Christ, that we are depositing towards a future wrath? Most people don't. But you should think about it. Here's why, fifth truth, the judgment of God is rendered to each one according to his works. He says, verse 6, He will render, that is, God will render to each one according to his works. Now, we, we already know that God's judgment will be based on the truth, and it's going to be according to his righteousness, but he tells us here it's also according to works. Uh, this is a quote from Psalm 62.12, among other places, but 62.12 says, for you will render to a man according to his work. And it's a principle that's taught in several places, several of the prophecies, Hosea, Jeremiah, even Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 9, verse 9 says, then he said to me, the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood, the city full of injustice. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land, and the Lord does not see. But as for me, says God speaking, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. That's the same principle, isn't it? Even Jesus repeated this principle. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. Now, some might say, now, wait a minute, I'm confused. Paul has clearly said, chapter 1, verse 17, that uh, salvation is by faith alone. It's not by what we do. It's not our works. So, Paul, is he contradicting himself? He's not contradicting himself. 
It is true. Our salvation, our justification before God is by faith. But judgment is according to works. The presence or absence of faith, saving faith in hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of works. Now, Paul and James sometimes pitted against one another, but they're teaching the same thing, that authentic faith always results in good works because faith without works is dead, remember? So notice how Paul fleshes this out in, chapter, in verses 7 through 11. He says there are two categories of people. Verse 7, to those uh, who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now who is he talking about there? He's talking about believers, isn't he? He's talking about, verses 117, those who have put their faith in Christ. He's talking about Chapter 2, verse 4, those who are repenting of their sin before God. And that is evidenced, it is evidenced by someone who it says by patience, I think probably more accurately by perseverance. That person is seeking the glory of God. They are seeking the honor or the approval of God in everything that they do. And they're seeking immortality, the unfading joy of the presence of God. And this is the direction of this person's life. When you look at them, this is, they are persevering in a direction of seeking God's glory, God's honor, and God's presence. And their reward, he says very clearly, will be eternal life. They will not perish but have everlasting life. This person is not saved because of his works, but his works reveal that he's saved. And there'll be reward for those works in heaven. God will render rewards to faithful believers. But there's a second group of people, verse 8. Verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Now feel the weight of that again. The Bible says that God is not just angry at sin. He is indignant and furious. And it's an affront to God, this person who is living in this kind of direction in constant defiance to God. I sprawl in his typical way. He says, who do we think that we are? as his creatures, to do what we want to do rather than what God commands us. And you see their works, that the fact that they are self-seeking, it says they are not obedient to the truth of God, they're obeying unrighteousness, that they're going to be rendered. God's going to render to them wrath and fury. Verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. It's so important. I imagine when he said, for the Jew first, there was probably gasp. For the self-righteous moralizer, and for the shameless, the one who's in shameless perversity, and, and it, we cannot come to God and say, well, I was a member of the church, or, or, well, I was a descendant of Abraham himself. Because it will count to nothing. 
God is keeping impeccable records on every person's life. And every single deed of every person in the history of the human race is going to be recorded and is recorded by God. For every unbeliever, Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 through 15, reveals what will happen at the end of time. Revelation 20 says this, verse 11, And I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books. And notice what it says, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, all of them, according to what they had done. These books recorded the detailed records of every action, every deed, every thought, every motive of an unbeliever before God. Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the ultimate fulfillment for unbelievers. It's the one we're reading about here in Romans. Final judgment. The end. Only, it says, those names who are found in the book of life. Uh, sometimes called the Lamb's book of life. And, and, and it contains the names of those whose sins had been covered by the Lamb who is Jesus. Only the names in that book have eternal life. And the question is today, which group are you in? Have your sins been covered by the blood of the Lamb? Are you living a life of repentance and faith? And as Paul says here, where the direction of your life is persevering after the glory and the honor and the presence of God? Or are you kind of going your own way and hoping that your self-righteousness is going to get you in? It will be a foolish and a fatal hope. You have no excuse, O man, Paul says. Father, thank you again for the clarity of these things things of which we do not talk about enough things that have eternal significance and they are weighty for that very reason Lord please give us all ears to hear may we look to your son Jesus the Lamb of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again that we might be forgiven and have eternal life May every eye and every tongue confess today that Jesus is.
Lord. We give this time to you for this reflection, for repentance, for recommitment, or perhaps someone who needs to come forward and, and follow Jesus today. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.